I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. I, I wanted to start by asking a question um, and, uh, and just to give a little invitation. Um, on Friday, I, I, I invited some friends to, um, to hang out uh, over at Bellcraft to to like, so I could like give my rough draft of my sermon, uh, which helped me have a good weekend where I didn't have to think quite as much about my sermon on Saturday, but also it was a good time to hang out and the guys asked some good questions and, uh, and anyways, uh, the reason I bring that up is I, I was just thinking it'd be kind of fun if you, if you wanted to join us on, on Fridays, we're going to try and get in the habit of doing that. So hit, hit me up, uh, via text. Um, and I, and I started to think, I wonder what it would look like if we, started to invite our friends, and maybe your friends that won't come here would show up on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock over at the tavern and, uh, and open their Bibles with us. So uh, we're going to be doing that at four o'clock on Fridays. There's my invitation, but I started uh, Friday afternoon by asking the guys a question. What's the worst thing that somebody could say about you? Think about it. What's, what's the worst thing that somebody could say about you? The thing that would hurt you the most, the thing that would make you feel the worst about yourself. The guys were like answering back with some questions. One, one said being called a liar would be really bad. Another uh, said being called uh, a wuss. Is that, that's church appropriate, right? I was trying to, you know, there's some really mean words that guys sometimes use to, to, to call each other basically not manly, not tough. Man! That's a hard thing to be called for a bunch of guys, you know. Um, I don't know. What's the worst thing that you could be called? I, I, I know for me, one of the worst things that I could be called is uh, fake. Anyone relate with that? Anybody into the Enneagram? Have you heard? Any, raise your hand. Give me a little hand raise. If you've, the Enneagram was super popular like two years ago, and I feel like it's, it's fading a little bit. But it's essentially like a, kind of like a, 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 a Christian-based personality profile. That helps show you not only your like tendencies, but also kind of like your root sense. And uh, hold up your fingers if you know what Enneagram number you are. Come on, join with me here. All right, cool. Um, So I am an Enneagram three. Okay, Enneagram number threes are known as achievers uh, or uh, performers. The achieving side is kind of the cool side of the bent. The, The bad side of the bent is the performing side. What do I mean by that? Well, when I learned that I was an Enneagram number three, I first thought, yeah, that's right, man. I'm an achiever. I get stuff done. I achieve things. Felt really good to find out that. And then I realized the root sin for an Enneagram three is the sin of performing. The sin of trying to gain the approval of others. And I think the reason it hurt me so bad is because it's often been true that I've, I've cared more about what people thought about me, sometimes at the expense of my own character even, 
man, it was, have often been ruled. And, and what's produced when you're performing? Well, what's produced is like a fakeness. An, an external reality that doesn't always match the internal reality. Man, that was really hard to find out about myself that at times I'm prone to be fake. It's kind of yucky to even think about it. But this is the, the essence of what Jesus is after in this passage. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, um, this passage is, um, it, it says Jesus's word, maybe your subtitle says Jesus's words to the Pharisees or his words to the hypocrites. Um, these words are really to the spiritually serious of Jesus's day. And so I wanted to start by just kind of asking this question or addressing the question, like who is this passage actually to? So what's happened in uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, Jesus was asked three questions by the religious leaders, three difficult questions. They were trying to trap him and they did not succeed. In fact, he even ends their three questions by asking them a question. And at the end of his question, uh, the Pharisees are left speechless. And he's dismissed them. It, It says actually in verse 46 of chapter 22 that no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus has won the debate. He's dismissed the Pharisees. Why is that important? Because even though this passage seems like it's about or it's to the Pharisees, the Pharisees aren't even around anymore. And I think that offers us a real clue about who this passage is for. See, we can often think, and one of the things that we do, especially when we embrace this nature of like uh, exterior versus interior, is we can often say things like, oh, it's about them, those people over there. Those people over there, they're the ones doing it this way, all the while ignoring what's going on in our own hearts, in our own lives. We tend to see the things or the flaws in other people more easily, more readily than we see the flaws within our own selves. Well, Jesus says at the start of chapter 23, actually the narrator says, (laughs) Jesus said to who? To the crowds and to his disciples. So who is this passage directed towards? Not the Pharisees, but the crowds that were following him and his own disciples. Now, the first first part of that sentence is revealing. It says, Jesus said. How many of you have a Bible that has red letters like my Bible when Jesus talks? You're going to notice here that we uh, we are entering a section that is all red. Chapter 23 is all red. Chapter 24 is just about all red. And chapter 25 is also all red. So that makes this a sermon. Commentators tend to agree that Jesus taught five sermons in the book of Matthew. Now remember Matthew, uh, the author Matthew was writing mostly to Jewish believers. And he was trying to persuade them that Jesus really was the Messiah who they'd been longing for. And so uh, anybody know the main author of the Old Testament, the one that the Jews would have looked to as the main authority, the main biblical author? Moses, right? So the, Moses was known to have written uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. We call those the Pentateuch or the Torah. Sometimes they're referred to as the law. But there were five books 
of Moses. So how many sermons of Jesus does Matthew include in his gospel? Five. What Matthew's saying to this Jewish audience is uh, this Jesus guy, he has the authority of Moses. The one that you look to for authority, Jesus' teachings are on the same level, in fact, greater than because he's the fulfillment of the teachings of Moses. So anyways, there's five sermons of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, most famous sermon ever preached. Chapter 10, the Sermon on Mission. Chapter 13, uh, the Sermon uh, on Parables. Chapter 18, the Sermon on the Congregation. And then today we enter, chapters 23, 24, and 25, Jesus' great sermon on warnings and the future. So this is a sermon. These are Jesus' words. And these words are to the crowds and to the disciples. Again, the Pharisees have gone. This isn't to be received, I don't believe, as a message for them over there. I believe that this is a message for us, those of us with our butts in the seats on a Sunday morning. So I just want to invite you into this posture of looking into the mirror this morning. You know, we're, it's so easy to think about what the people over there are, are, are doing wrong and getting wrong. But Jesus comes right at his own people. In fact, we know this already about Jesus. His harshest words are directed towards insiders in the gospel of Matthew, not outsiders. You know, we're, we're really prone to yell about what the people in the streets are doing, aren't we? It's really easy for us to say, man, people these days, our culture and not that we're always wrong when we say those things, but I think Jesus is clear. The magnifying glass needs to be inward first and foremost. I just wanted to invite you this morning to see the Pharisee in me, the Pharisee in we, the ways in which we live lives that are hypocritical, the way, the way in which we live lives that have an interior that doesn't match all the time the exterior. Now, uh, some, uh, some commentators actually argue that this passage couldn't possibly be a passage from Jesus. Like Jesus couldn't possibly have said these things because the words are so harsh. Anybody have a, have a challenge with like kind of harsh Jesus? You know, we tend to, you know, uh, we, we tend to love loving Jesus. And here, here we get a picture of the love of Jesus in one of its harshest forms you know, and it, it kind of makes you ask that question, well, man, this is the same guy who said that we are supposed to love our enemies. And here he's coming forward with some really hard words. And so this is why I want to invite you to remember, I think these words are not for our enemies so much as they are for us this morning. And Jesus uses his harshest words for the ultimate purpose, his hardest words for the ultimate purpose of making in us soft hearts, hard words soft hearts, soft words, hard hearts. You get to pick. So this morning we get a choice to receive the hard words of Jesus and in those hard words to receive the love of Jesus. Sometimes hard words are the words necessary for expressing love. So this sermon on hypocrisy, it's not about the Pharisees. It's about the Pharisee in me. So join me in having that perspective as we study this morning. So let's start 
with verse 3 through 7. So first, what Jesus is going to get after is this concept of bad religion. And yes, I know that that's a band. Okay, and, and that... I actually kind of like that band. Anyways, um, what is bad religion? So this is the how not to do it side of Jesus' teaching. So there's three things I want to point out that Jesus pointed out in the lives of the Pharisees or the hypocrites or the spiritually serious. First of all, it's that uh, their preaching didn't equal their practice. When preaching and practice don't match up, You're living the life of a hypocrite. He says in verse 2, they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the spiritually serious, they sit in Moses' seat, which is just a reference to Jewish custom where the rabbi in a synagogue would sit in the seat known as Moses' seat as he taught. The seat represents the office of rabbi or teacher. It's interesting to note that Jesus, by saying this, he actually acknowledges the authority of the spiritually serious Pharisees, the religious leaders, he acknowledges their authority. He says, they sit in Moses' seat, so you must do everything they tell you. He doesn't dismiss their authority. Once again, we learn that that Jesus was pro-submission to earthly authority. This can be hard for us, as we learned just a few weeks ago. Whether it's government or even in the house of God, there's a way in which Jesus calls us to submit even to authority that's a little bit off. So, so what's the beef that Jesus has with these leaders? What's the beef that he has with them? It's, it's not what they preach. We actually find that in this first verse. His beef with them is not what they preach. It's what they practice. These are really uh, hard words for us as a church. Like sometimes we can be so focused on getting our message right, getting our doctrine right. We can be so fo- focused on orthodoxy that we forget our orthopraxy, that it's the practice of our doctrine that matters to Jesus. If we could put this in EVC uh, language, we could say that they were more about the principles than they were about the posture of their heart. They put principles over posture. Are principles bad? No. We should have principles. Jesus actually says you should do what they tell you to do. You should just not live how they live. These are really hard words. The next thing that we find about the bad religion of the religious leaders is that it's, it's heavy and hard instead of light and easy. Remember Jesus' light and easy yoke. He says in verse 4, they put heavy loads on people's shoulders and then they don't lift a finger to move them. Heavy loads. You, go do it yourself. This, was, this is the message of bad religion. Heavy loads and not a finger to help move them. Their burden is not the light and easy yoke of Jesus. What does Jesus, what does Jesus do? His, his burden is light because he's made a way for us people who, who can't get it all right to be in relationship with the perfect God. His, his burden is light. And his yoke is easy. Look, it's, it's heavy and it's hard if you have to carry the burden yourself. Jesus provided a finger to help move the burden. So they're, they're uh, heavy and hard instead of light and easy. The third thing that we see in this bad religion 
is a vain glory instead of an orientation towards God's glory. In verse 5, we see the motives behind their methods. And this is where things start to get really uh, personal. It says in verse 5, everything they do is done for the glory of God? No. Everything they do is done for people to see. (laughs) We stumbled over this word phylacteries. Phylacteries. That's an amazing word. Tassels, it talks about in this passage. Go ahead and take a minute, if you'd like, to Google what a phylactery is. But these, these phylacteries and tassels, they're, they're going to look really weird, and it sounds kind of weird that they were like wearing prayer boxes on their foreheads and on their, their arm. But they were actually Old Testament law commandments. So they were keeping the commandment, but they had made their prayer boxes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? To impress people. Look at how holy I am. I've got so many prayers that your small little prayer box cannot even contain them. The tassels that we've been commanded to have on our garments, oh, mine are longer. See, it's not what they do, it's how they do it. Do you get what I'm saying? They're just following commandments. It's the way that they're following commandments. Everything they do is done for people to see. It says also that they love the place of honor and the important seats at synagogues. Well, we know already Jesus has taught that the first will be last and the last will be first. But the Pharisees had gotten it out of whack. And if we're honest, sometimes we get it out of whack. And then finally, it says that they they love the way that they're treated when people acknowledge their office. What's the office? Rabbi or teacher. And so Jesus tells them, do not call yourselves rabbi. Is that because Jesus is against titles? No, because he had apostles. Later in, the, in, in Paul's writings, we're going to learn about some other offices that there needs to be. I mean, titles are just a part of life, right? They help clarify roles and responsibilities. Jesus isn't anti-title. He's anti-gaining esteem from your titles. He's anti-gaining personal honor and glory from your titles. So there, let it be, let it be written, let it be said. Do not call me rabbi in this church. So it's not that they didn't live for God. That's the thing you have to see. The the spiritually serious Pharisees were the ultimate followers of Yahweh in Jesus' time and place. I mean, just who do you think about when you think about the person in your life that's like totally devoted to God? Who do you think about? It's not that they didn't live for God. It's that even their life for God had the esteem of others as its final end. This is a huge error to make, to live ultimately for the esteem of others rather than the esteem of God. In Matthew 6, Jesus was railing about prayer, fasting, and tithing in the wrong vein. And he says, if you do those things in order to receive the attention of man, guess what? You will receive the attention of man. There's a way to live a life of faith that will garner you the praise of the crowds. But Jesus says, guess what? You will get the praise of the crowds if you aim for the praise of the crowds. But that will be your final reward. But when we seek first the kingdom of God, we get the kingdom of God. 
So the question before us is, what do you want? Do you want the praise of man or do you want the kingdom of God? This is a decision that we have to make. You can have the esteem of others if you truly want it, if you make it your end goal, but that's all you're going to get. So Jesus is clear. Showiness, even showy faith, especially showy faith, it's not the ticket. So, so what is the ticket? How must one live in order to avoid the perils of the spiritually serious Pharisees? What does good faith look like? Let's take a look at verse 8 through 12. There's three things I want you to see in verses 8 through 12. Number one, I want you to see that the call of Jesus is a call to substance over style. Substance over style. The second thing I want you to see is the call to Jesus' kingdom is a call to humility over personal honor. And the third thing that I want you to see is that the call to Jesus' kingdom is is a call to submission putting yourself under Christ and his lordship as opposed to showiness. See, he says, but you are not to be called rabbi. This is verse 8. It harkens back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, when he says, you know, the authorities of the world lord it over their subjects, but not so with you. There's a different way to establish authority, to lead in Jesus' kingdom. He says, you are not to be called rabbi. And, and as I've already said, does he, does he really mean like literally nobody can have the title of rabbi? No, obviously titles are important. But Jesus is making the case that we oughtn't love these titles. We oughtn't gain a sense of worth from these titles. Man, this can be really tempting. What titles do you hold on to? Stay-at-home mom. Offensive coordinator, general manager. I don't know what your titles are. What titles do you hold on to? How tightly do you hold on to them? Verse 11 says, the greatest among you will become what? Your servant. It's not that Jesus isn't about greatness in his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom has a place for greatness. But there's a way to greatness In Jesus' kingdom, that's very different than the way to greatness in the kingdoms of the world. The way to be great in Jesus' kingdom is to be a servant. The greatest among you will become your servant. See, we live in a world where those who exalt themselves tend to get the most praise. Kind of like Colorado Buffaloes coach Deion Sanders, which is why we had to humble him yesterday. Sorry, that's a side note. If you guys aren't college football fans, you're not with me at all right now. Anyways... That was for Andy. Anyways, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. We live in a world that teaches the opposite principles. But look, and some of you would probably sit here saying, well, I, I, I mean, I don't even like being up front. I get really nervous if I'm up in front. I'm, I don't like, you know, exalting myself. We, we kind of have this cultural way of like false humility, the humble brags, right? So let's just think about some ways that maybe we exalt ourselves. You know, when you just kind of slide in the fact that you haven't missed church in eight weeks. I'm really involved in my church. Well, I was talking to someone just last night. We raised our kids in the church. You know what I'm saying? Like these aren't bad things. 
That's great if you've been at church every week for the last eight, eight weeks. That's awesome. But you see how we use these things sometimes to exalt ourselves. What does your Instagram handle say? What does your bio say about you? Are you using your social media presence to exalt yourself? I don't know. You get what I'm trying to do here, though, right? Don't we do this? Because it feels so darn good to get the praise of the people around us. And uh, as you know, the like button is like just like the, the little clicker they use in those rat studies. You just keep, it feels so good to get likes. It feels so good to get likes. But remember, the likes in this world are all the reward when that's what we pursue. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So this passage already is challenging enough, and and you're probably feeling exposed. Maybe you're feeling like, yep, I do that, I do that, and I'm toast. But Jesus isn't done. He's not done. Matter of fact, he's, he's about to go scorched earth on these religious leaders with seven woes. Now, we don't use this word woe very often in, in modern day language. So let me explain. A, a woe is just a warning. It's, it's a warning or a condemnation maybe even. It's a pronouncement of judgment even. So think of these woes positioned in Jesus' fifth and final sermon in the book of Matthew as a bookend to what did he use? What was it? Woes in the Sermon on the Mount? No, it was blessed be. We call those the, the Beatitudes. So let's think about these woes as a bookend to what Jesus blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Or even if you're like, I don't know, Noel, I, I don't go to church enough to know what the Sermon on the Mount is. Trust me, you've, you've blessed are the poor in spirit. Have you heard that before? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. So Jesus started his kingdom with blessing. But who did he bless? Did he bless the honorific? Did he bless those who had gained a lot of praise on earth? No, he blessed the poor in spirit. He blessed those who were mourning. So position those blessings against Jesus' woes in this passage. Jesus blessed the downcast. Look, if you're here this morning and you're down and out, you feel outcast. Maybe you're here this morning and you're mourning this morning. Maybe you feel like you don't fit. Maybe you feel like you jacked it all up and there's no coming back. Maybe you feel like an outsider. I'm here to tell you that in Jesus this morning, you can be made an insider through faith. This is, the good, this is why we stand and raise our hands. Because Jesus can make the sinner holy. He's about to proclaim woes on those who have exalted themselves. The ones who are high and mighty. The ones who sit in the seat of power and lord it over their subjects. So last slide here. Woe to me, woe to you. I guess I have two slides left. We saw bad religion. We've seen good faith. And now we're going to see the woes. There's three pairs of woes in this passage. The first and second, third and fourth, fifth and sixth. And then the final woe, which is really a final pronunciation, a decision of judgment and destruction. So Jesus is kind of going to break it down 
Woe to you, and this is why. The first two say, woe to you, hypocrites. And I want to read from Matthew 23. And I see, I knew I was going to do this. I, I lost my spot. Matthew 23, 13 says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. We didn't read this part out loud because I didn't want you guys to get angry this morning. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. See, the, the spiritually serious were so puffed up that they controlled the gates to the kingdom of God. And the ironic thing is that not only did they not allow others to enter, they didn't themselves enter. How would they have entered? Through faith in Jesus. It's, it's one thing to not enter yourself. It's a whole another thing to control others' ability to enter. Now, a little bit more about that. Look at the, the, the next part of the woe. So this is the second woe that I think is paired with the first woe. Verse uh, 13 goes on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Again, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You're really motivated to mission, is what Jesus is saying. But when you've succeeded in your mission, what do you produce? It says you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Conversion to a false gospel. Man, this is dangerous. This is incredibly scary for me to read as a pastor. Like, look, there's a way that we could build a church. There's a way we could even baptize people into a gospel that is not the true gospel. And we have to be honest about the reality and the possibility of doing so. Man, when you succeed, you convert them into twice as much a child of hell. Like, we've got to have gospel purity. We want to get it right here. We want to have good doctrine here. We want to, you know, we want to do church right here. But man, more than gospel purity, what we need is gospel fruit. Is our li- is our lives, are our lives, are our lives lining up with the fruits of the Spirit? As we enter the kingdom, as we enter conversion, what's the product? Jesus, spare us from converting people to a false gospel. Woe three and four, uh, in, in woes three and four, uh, we see that the people are, are not called hypocrites. The Pharisees are called blind, fools and blind guides. Let's read it. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Blind fools, blind guides. This is, uh, this is the ultimate picture of hypocrisy. This is why we sang the song this morning, Open the Eyes of My Heart. 
The problem that we have when we live in hypocrisy is we don't see things rightly. We're blind. The religious leaders were blinded to the error in their ways. Look, the main danger to your life with God, it's an inability to see rightly. Think of the plank in the eye. That story Jesus told where we're so, we're so prone to point out just the speck in somebody else's eye, all the while not seeing this enormous plank that's in our own eye. Number one, it's bad to see something in somebody else that you can't see in yourself. But what's the effect of not, of not being able to do that? If you have a plank in your eye, how well can you see? You're blind. This is the reality when we, when we point things out in other people's lives that we don't see in our own lives. There's a blindness that's at hand here. And Jesus, in these two woes, he uses the word blind fools, blind guides, and blind men. It could have been women too. It's a gender neutral, I'm sure, on that one. See, and there's just like, okay, the temple, swearing by the gold on the altar. It kind of sounds confusing, but here's the thing. And have you ever played games like this? Like, you know, like there were things that you could swear on as a kid, but there are things you couldn't swear on as a kid, right? If you swear to God, that was really bad. For me, in my house growing up, we were not allowed to swear to God, right? And, and we kind of do this with semantics, don't we? And this is what the, the people of Israel had done using semantics. See, they had a lot of details. They were into details. The religious leaders were into details. They were even into a lot of spiritual, religious details. What do we call those? We call those rituals. They were really into rituals, making sure that they got all the little things right. But you know what they were less into? Righteousness. And Jesus has a big problem with people who are into rituals without righteousness. See, sometimes we justify ourselves based on the rituals. Oh, I sweared by the, I, I sweared, I swore by the temple. I, got, I didn't swear in Jesus' name. A focus on ritual without righteousness is getting it wrong. This is not good faith. How could this be for us? Think about ways in which we've gotten this wrong. Anybody, anyone been baptized but then refused to live a life of righteousness? A baptism without obedience? Oh man, that's convicting. How about those of us that have participated weekly in communion and then continued to live however we wanted to live? the other six days of the week. Even little things like those of us, I mean, we're not a real formal church, but you know, I got a collar on. This is dressed up for me, okay? This is dressed up for me. And sometimes we get dressed up to church as if to, to present this image of like righteousness. But it, that's all it is, it's a ritual. And if we're not careful, we can turn our faith into a bunch of rituals. Jesus calls for a faith based on righteousness. He says, you do all these little things. You're, you're trying to check all the dots, but you ignore justice. You ignore mercy. You ignore faithfulness. Woe to those who have put rituals over righteousness. Last but not least, we get to woe five and woe six. Verse 25, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. Again, he calls them hypocrites now. You clean the outside of the cup. All the while, the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. 
blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He's getting after self-exalting showiness. When we're showy but not submitted to Jesus, to his kingdom ways, the outside looks clean and tidy. The outside of the cup is clean. But the inside contains hypocrisy and wickedness. I mean, how about you? Do you ever portray an outside that's not consistent with the inside? Do you ever present a false self? Look, and, and what we're after here is not just like, it doesn't make it okay if we just like are honest about our unrighteousness. I think Jesus really cares about us living righteous lives. Like he actually wants mercy, justice, faithfulness. Like, it, like just like being who you are and, 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 and saying true things about yourself isn't just the ticket. Yeah, I drink too much. Yeah, I, I look at pornography, but so does every guy. You see what I'm saying? Jesus actually cares about righteous living, and I believe he's made a way for us to live righteous lives. His grace transforms us. So how about you? Do you ever present a false self? In which ways? And I'm just praying that God would reveal, even now, there are certain somethings that are inconsistent. And God, we pray that you would even now reveal your heart to us, that you would be searching our hearts, Lord. Finally, woe seven uh, is a result. It's a result woe. And final rejection. You're going to see the final rejection of Jerusalem. Let me read uh, this to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending your prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, who were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You snakes, brood of vipers. Where have we heard that before? Matthew chapter three, Jesus' best friend, John the Baptist, used that when the Pharisees came out to see what he was up to. Brood of vipers. At first, I thought that a brood meant like a, a cluster of vipers. But brood actually means like the seed of vipers. Jesus is calling these Pharisees the offspring 
from the family lineage of the one viper. Who was the one viper in the garden? Satan. You sons of Satan, he calls the spiritually serious religious leaders of his day. This is like immense language. He goes on to say, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Look, here's the point. The thing that we got to get straight about our hypocrisy is that it's not just a little thing. Hypocrisy, our hypocrisy, my hypocrisy, it's not just bad, it's evil. It's demonic. It's satanic. And ultimately, if left, un- if left unchecked, it will lead to what? Destruction. Ultimately, it's destruction that comes to Israel. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, just 30 years after the life of Christ. Hypocrisy, it's not just bad. It's not just something to laugh about. It's not just something to work on. It's evil. It's Satan. And look, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I could, I could, speaking sarcastically, I know, you know, you never do anything on the list. We just went through. I know, I know none of those woes apply to you or me. I know we never try to project an image that isn't true. I know we never say one thing all the while doing another. We never hold people to a standard that we ourselves aren't willing to follow through with. Look, for, for a lot of us, if we're honest, like if we're really deeply honest with ourselves, that even though you would even acknowledge right now that, yeah, man, I, I'm a bit hypocritical myself. There's ways that, I, that my practice and my preach aren't lining up. But it's still, man, it's just so easy to point the finger at others. Those people over there need to get their act together. This passage has even been used by Christians throughout time to point the finger at the Jewish people. But remember, when you point one finger, there's at least three pointing back at yourself. This passage is for us today. It's not just those people that are doing it wrong. It's us people that are doing it wrong. So could I invite us into a change of tune? Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If, if you got them open, go with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is uh, an encounter between the prophet Nathan and King David. David, uh, you, you know this about David probably. This is a pretty famous part of David's, David's life. He, he uh, committed adultery with the woman called Bathsheba. And he took her to be his own wife, right? And then what does he do? He, uh, he actually goes a step further and he has her husband sent to the front lines, essentially murdering her husband, Uriah. This is what David has done. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said a little story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. It says in the story, verse 5, that David burned with anger when he heard the prophet Nathan share this little parable. 
He, he said, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Because he did such a thing and had no pity, David says, how could that guy have done that? How could that guy in the story, how could that man in the story have acted that way towards the poor man? What does Nathan say? You are the man, is what Nathan says. You, David, are the man in the story. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You are the man, Nathan said to David. And I think if we're honest, we are the man. We are the man in the story who's done wrong. And we, like David, can be so eager to point the finger at those people over there. But man, let us be a self-critical church. See, because when we're self-critical, this is the thing about self-criticism when it's done with a pure heart. Self-criticism is actually able to acknowledge the grace of God. If we're not able to be critical with ourselves, what we're saying is that we have to earn it. And when we can't, we hide it. But when we've accepted the grace, when we know the grace of God, when we know we've got a loving father who's provided for us in every way, even making covering for our sin, we go to him and we receive the grace. And this is what David actually does. And I believe that this is why David is known as a man after God's own heart. Go to Psalm 51. This Psalm, it says, was written when the prophet Nathan came to him after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is David's response. This is the song that he writes. In response to being the man in this story, David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. What does David believe about the love of God? Does he believe the love of God is shaming, ultimately condemning? No, he believes that the love of God is unfailing. According to your great compassion, he believes that God is a God of compassion. Blot out my transgressions. David takes ownership of his own transgressions. He says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Skipping on to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is my prayer for our church. God, and, and let's pray together. Hey, we're so glad you joined us. But don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. 
Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.